Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about fake news and misinformation. And joining me to do that, we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College in Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Yeah, doing well, doing well. And we have a special guest today. We have Rachel Whiteman, who is Associate Director for Instruction and Outreach at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. How's it going, Rachel? Good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So how about we begin by asking about why misinformation is such a problem and why people of faith in particular should be concerned about it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, as a librarian, I have spent a lot of time thinking and talking with particularly students, but people in general about information. And I think that, you know, if I guess the thing that I think about a lot is that if you look at our culture, if you look at our this point in history, we have access to so much information. <laughs> um, I mean, more information than I think we've ever had access to. And the mm-hmm. way information gets communicated is very different. Even if you think like 150 years ago, people got their information from a newspaper. They got mm-hmm. it from talking to people, from mailing letters, right? It was a very different information landscape. And so I think our current information landscape is just so different. We have social media, we have online platforms, we have the internet. Um, Mm -hmm. We just have access to so much stuff. And I think that that just puts us into a place where it's, it's also really easy for people to create information. It's very easy for people to create a blog. It's very easy for people to just put things out there. And we've lost in some ways, that's created a great open, you know, academics talk about open access, right? That's Mm -hmm. great. We've created this open environment, but we've also made it possible for a lot of misinformation and disinformation to just Mm -hmm. get put out there very easily. And I think as Christians, as people of faith who seek truth, who want to be truth tellers, it's so important for us to be paying attention to where information is coming from, how it's being used, is is what we're sharing actually true? Or is it that misinformation? Is it disinformation? So I think I think it's it's just we have access to so much and it's just so easy for people to put things out there. And then you layer that with like algorithms and like platforms like Facebook and Google and YouTube and how they structure that information and how you see what you see just creates this environment that's very complicated, but also very easy for people to share and reshare and like and retweet. And suddenly you've created this situation where it's very complicated to root out what's not true. And it's really easy to reshare things that aren't true. I guess there's a a difference in our communication patterns now where previously we we majored on one-to-one or one-to-small group communication. And now it's one-to-many and it's completely diffuse and we instead of communicating in a conversation, uh, a lot of the time what we're doing is we're projecting, we're uh, casting things out into the world, which ten- tends to previously have been the purview of reporters, mm-hmm. of news media. You know, so the people who got to write stories or, or got to write uh, articles and research articles, send them out into the world for general consumption, weren't your average person on the street. They were people who had been trained and, and had a focus on that. And so mm-hmm. I, I guess as a librarian, what's the shift that you're seeing in how we do communication and how does that play into how we discern what truth is? How, how do we discern what facts are? 
Yeah, I think, well, a couple things. Um, one, when you were talking about sort of how we communicate, I think another big shift is not only are we communi- maybe communicating less one-on-one, but we're communicating through platforms that we don't pay for. Mm-hmm. So if you think about like 50 years ago, if you made a telephone call, you paid the telephone company to have access to have a phone in your house mm-hmm. and you were paying that company. Whereas now we're communicating through platforms like Facebook or Instagram or mm-hmm. Snapchat and all the other ones I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And we don't pay those companies. Other companies pay to advertise to us on those platforms. And so I think that that also changes the nature of how we see information. We, we, we use these tools for free, but yet they're collecting data on us. And then the other companies are, you know, advertising to us. And so that creates sort of this complicated situation as a librarian. I mean, I just see, I see my role as I hope in the coming years, librarians will shift from teaching people how to search specific tools you all might have done that in your studies, right? Like where you you learn how to use this one specific database. Mm-hmm. And I think the ease of access to information, actually, that's less relevant now. And it's more important to teach people skills on how to evaluate what they find. Right. And speaking of that, can we talk about ways to recognize misinformation, some practical steps for our listeners? Yeah, I think well, the first thing I actually talk about with people when it comes to thinking about like news and current events is less of a tool and more of a habit or like a self-reflection. And I really think uh, noticing our emotions is Mm -hmm. kind of the first step in starting to evaluate what we see. A lot of information and especially misinformation is spread by very sensational headlines, Mm -hmm. outrageous pictures, right? They Mm -hmm. want you to click on that information because if you click on it, they get more money for that. Right. So (laughs) that's my first thing is always like, before we even dive into like how to evaluate first, we need to be like, okay, what am I noticing? Mm -hmm. Am I really excited? Am I really mad? Because likely your emotions are an indication, not always, but it may be an indication that you're looking at something that is, you know, all kinds of things. So that's certainly like my first thing that I always tell people is like, notice your emotions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I think after that, some of the, like the, the practical tools that I often talk about are using fact checking websites mm-hmm. as a tool. So places like Snope or Litifact, those are worth checking because if you see something and you're like this seems crazy Mm -hmm. well maybe someone already fact checked it to see if it really is crazy Mm -hmm. so that's one tool that i i often recommend as just like an easy way to say okay did someone already fact check this wikipedia which we all tell college students not to use (laughs) as a source (laughs) is actually a really great way to to check something right like they have long lists of references at the end of some articles that can be helpful. So just seeing what's already been checked, like before we react, before we share, before we like things, let's just pause. Did anyone already check this? And then the other thing that I always tell people just very practically is when you're looking at an article, and this can feel really um, natural for some of us, depending on our academic backgrounds, but it's not natural for a lot of people. So when we're looking at something, um, if they say 
you know, a study came out yesterday and the, mm-hmm. the word study is hyperlinked, mm-hmm. click on it yeah, and yeah. go find the original study before you react to the news coverage about it. Right. Uh, which I think a lot of people don't take the time to do. They just mm-hmm. kind of react to what they read, they share it or respond or comment, which mm-hmm. we all know not to read the comments. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, they react without just saying like, okay, what's linked in this? Can I go back and find the original quote or the original study or the, you know, two articles ago, what were they saying about this? I think one of the, the, the key things there that you've talked about is how to place on our emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, as we talked about in a previous episode, the way that our emotions are activated tell us a lot about how we identify, how the groups that we're part of and what matters to them, what it matters to us as being part of those groups. Mm-hmm. So if something is tapping into that, uh, tapping into that sense of self and membership within a group, uh, I find even if it agrees with, with what you're thinking, you should be questioning it uh, because it does drive home that nature of healing to emotions rather than to cognition. Um, not that those can be ever particularly extracted from one another, but just that nature of trying to appeal to something which is less critical, critically reasoning. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think, yeah, you're right. The, the, all of the practices that research students get taught are the things that uh, everyone should be doing. It, it's uh, yeah, the, foot, the footnote crawl to find mm-hmm. out who's been influencing who. And even if that does lead you down that rabbit hole back to, to some article 20 layers deep, it's a good rabbit hole to be down. I think another sort of academic practice that we all do that is helpful for, you know, those who don't have academic backgrounds to think about as well is, you know, who published it and who wrote it. You know, you can you can learn a lot about the background of the publisher, the background of the journalist, and and that can also maybe inform how you should evaluate the piece, especially if, for example, you've never heard of that website or there is no byline with a, an author attributed to the piece. That should raise red flags. But I, I'm curious, Rachel, about the topic of bias in journalism, because I think bias is inevitable. I think uh, we all have a perspective and it's 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 not something that we can really sort of set aside it will influence us to some degree even if we are quote unquote trying to be objective but how do we think about that in light of this conversation of misinformation because i think some people throw around terms like fake news if it has a left slant or or a slant that just disagrees with them how do you think through that sort of complex set of issues yeah, I think that unfortunately, people in general, uh, Christians or otherwise, have gone down this sort of rabbit trail of feeling like we need to find things that are, you know, only neutral and, you know, we can't read things that have a bias. And I agree. I think we're, we're all human. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we, we stop being human, even journalists, right? They're, they're yeah. doing the best that they can potentially, but, you know, good journalism has standards but there's still there's still a perspective and so i am i i don't know that all of my uh colleagues in my profession would agree with me but i i think there has been a shift in the last few years of really teaching people to say let's recognize the bias mm-hmm. and that's actually more important than trying to find something that has no bias totally and and it's probably more worth our time to say like can i identify bias do i know maybe even what are some words that would indicate bias and being able to acknowledge the bias is Mm -hmm. a more helpful skill, I think, than 
seeking no bias because I just, I just don't think that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I was recently watching a webinar about news bias and they talked about the different kinds of bias, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's different, there are different kinds of bias and news organizations, you know, ha- that are following standards are trying not to do these things, but they happen. And then I guess the, the other piece of that to me that I try to remind people about is like, if you're noticing bias, like just make sure you're reading from different mm. news organizations that have different perspectives in order to get a like wider viewpoint. There's a really great website called allsides.com, nice. all one word, allsides.com. And they've rated different news media outlets with mm-hmm. different kind of bias or perspectives. And so you can look and see like, what are people with a political view on maybe the right what kinds of things are they publishing in their news outlets right. versus maybe people politically left? And what does the news coverage on the same topic look like from different perspectives? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's like practice that practice of saying, I'm going to seek out a different perspective, even if mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. Right. I think that's a really great reminder, uh, not not to look for something neutral, but recognizing the, the, the bias. And like that website you mentioned, All Sides, I think I've used that site or a similar site before to point out to some some friends that didn't realize that the sources that they constantly were drawing upon were all skewed far right or in some particular let's say uh, lane that they maybe don't themselves ideologically fit within but they didn't realize how much they were being influenced by uh, a, a very particular slant and i think it's fine if that's your favorite you know flavor of politics but the the issue is yeah not recognizing it and, and i think that's probably more insidious a few times we've, we've talked in this conversation about the place of christians the place of the church in this and i understand from an article that i read recently that you've run a course for specifically for people in your church in identifying misinformation and fake news and uh, media bias uh, interested in your thoughts on how this relates specifically for Christians, as people who are intrinsically involved in both the world and also in our own social groups, in our churches, interested in how this plays out, how you've been seeing it play out? I think, yeah, I think it's been such a really great, very cool opportunity for me to be able to do that class at my church. Actually, I've done it twice. So earlier in the year before the pandemic really started. And then um, I have had the opportunity to do it again right now, um, kind of over six weeks, which has been great because it feels like the whole world has changed since I did this back in February. I actually approached our pastor about it because I felt like, to me, being a librarian and seeking information and being careful about the information I consume fit so closely with my faith. And I, I've just been so surprised at how little I felt like the people around me, people of faith, were talking about it. They were talking about like information is overwhelming and that they're stressed by it, but there wasn't conversations around how to evaluate things or, you know, sometimes at our church, they might talk about hard topics like racism or other kinds of bias. And it was like, but we have to give people tools in order to help them address these things in their lives. And I think as Christians who want to be in the world, but not of it, we also have to understand our culture and the online culture, things like YouTube and social media and all the things, they're impacting our culture. And if we don't understand how they work, if we don't understand 
the role they play in our lives, I think we're missing a huge opportunity to really engage in a productive way. And there's so much toxicity around comments and anonymous stuff. You know, people can remain anonymous and it can create such a mess. And so if we want to, I think it's really easy for us to identify culture, you know, in terms of how you engage with your next door neighbor. I think the thing that I felt like was really missing was like, how do we as Christians engage with our, our online neighbors, our online communities? And are we recognizing the role that these tools and platforms are playing in our culture? And it's just something I felt like had, it wasn't it wasn't being talked about. And to me, they go so closely together. So yeah, it's been a really cool opportunity to be able to talk about it from a faith perspective. It's not one that I'm hearing anyone really talk about. Um, it just, to me, feels so important. I'm interested in one thing that I've noticed in thinking about church. Part of that is that we as Christians, we believe that there is more to life than what we see, what we have in front of us. Uh, in fact, we have entire sections of the Bible which are dedicated to interpreting uh, that there is more to life than that. Uh, so uh, the apocalyptic literature, which I do some work in Daniel 7 8, talks about how uh, the things of this world are actually completely uh, transcendent and there are, there are all sorts of other powers that are going on behind the scenes. I'm just wondering whether or not you see this as sort of feeding into some of the Christian susceptibility to uh, fake uh, I mean, we're, we're teaching, we're training our people on such a regular basis that there is more to life than what, is, what we see. Then how does that play out in uh, situations where the media or, or parts of uh, the internet are telling people that there's more to life than you can see? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question and something I've, I've recently been thinking about and actually brought up in my class this past Sunday. And I mean, you all are the theologians, but I, I was, it was kind of like, I was thinking this past couple of weeks about how, at, I don't know if I necessarily think Christians are more or less susceptible to misinformation, but it, I've been really mulling over, like, we have an enemy that of course wants to spread misinformation, right? Like, of course there's more going on behind the scenes and whether or not that means Christians are more susceptible, I don't know. But I've just been really struck by like, it's a tool that the enemy can use and make it hard for us to find truth and, and to be engaging productively in culture and, you know, engaging with online information, because of course, the enemy doesn't want us to find that. And so I've been kind of struck by that lately, um, just that there is more going on. And I think that that's another piece that Christians may not be kind of thinking about. And how do we invite the Holy Spirit into what we're doing and how we're engaging with people online in a way that is productive and, and loving and kind and allows us to seek truth? And I just think, you know, it's just a, it's something that I don't think, I think we, as Christians, we consider those things in other ways, right? Like, prayer or whatever, but like, what does that look like? I, I, I've been asking that in my class a lot. Like, what does it look like to invite the Holy Spirit into what you're doing online or the conversations you're having? Or what does it look like to be a Christian in an online environment? We should be acting differently, I would think. And so what, is it, what does that look like? And I don't know that I even have any answers yet, but I've just been really like asking the people in my class over and over again, the class at church, like, 
what does this look like? We need to figure this out because we can't just pretend we're like everyone else. We're, mm. we're staying, we're different. So what does that look like? Yeah. And I guess this is going to be one area that's going to only be increasing uh, relevance, especially with COVID, how everything is moving online. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're moving all our churches online, um, here in Melbourne, we've just come out of a just shy of a 110-day lockdown, I think it has been. Um, wow, wow. And, but even just the very nature of, of COVID forcing everything into the online space means that in the church, we, we have the great opportunity to be able to be a, a Christian presence in that space. But what mm-hmm. does that actually look like, I guess, mm-hmm. is, is a big question. Um, mm-hmm. we, still, we still major on things that are face-to-face or face-to-face-like, so mm-hmm. Zoom meetings and things like that. Um, yeah. how, how we navigate this space is actually going to be quite critical. I think, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if there are any answers to be had right now. And I think that just, I think the other piece that as you're saying that I'm thinking about how, like in the education space, you know, so many people have tried to say, well, I do this face to face and I'm just going to figure out the online equivalent. And I don't think that works. And I think it's the same thing in so many other areas, including Christian environments, right? Just taking a face-to-face thing and putting it online may not be enough. And what does that look like? Well, I really like that point about how COVID has sort of forced us online, which is, of course, uh, the center for the misinformation that keeps getting spread around. And I, I'm curious about some of the various phenomena that we've seen related to misinformation this year in particular. One of the things that comes to mind is this phenomena where you have people sort of latching on to a singular expert. So think about COVID for a second, right? You had, you know, a handful of interesting examples. You had these uh, doctors in Fresno who made a little video and they're like, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. Or you have those um, doctors who made the announcement about hydroxychloroquine. And it's like, there's a consensus of medical doctors who do not say what these, let's just say rogue doctors are saying. And yet, there's this tendency to say, well, I'm going to go with them. I'm, I found my expert. The expert agrees with me. So therefore, that's the right answer, as opposed to thinking critically or more broadly about this issue. What do you have to say about this issue of like expertise and misinformation? Because this is, a, I think, a, a more um, nefarious aspect to it, because presumably these are experts And yet there's this tricky issue of are experts spreading misinformation? Yeah, that's really tricky. I think that's part of what has, honestly, some of those examples that you just mentioned were part of why I reached back out to Mill City Church and was like, we got to do this class again. I think that there are, again, it's so complicated. It's so Mm -hmm. easy for someone to make a YouTube, and yet it's so easy for someone to just make a YouTube video. And I think that that's where I really encourage people to kind of like what you were saying before, like look at where these people were, mm-hmm. look at their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I, I had family post things online, like this video of a doctor and they were just, oh, look, he's saying it's not that bad. A quick Google search showed me that this doctor was a chiropractor. Mm-hmm. Nothing against chiropractors. I have a great one. Sure. But like when we're talking about it, a viral pandemic. Right, right. Let's pause. That's that pausing piece, right? There's this sense that like, oh, they're saying what I want to hear because he's saying this is going to be over in a week, right? And of course, in the middle of a lockdown, we want this all to be (laughs) over. So it's that pausing and saying, okay, okay, well, what kind of doctor are they? 
you know, where do they work? Oh, this person owns their owns the clinic, you know, of course they're going to benefit from X, Y, and Z saying this, right? Mm -hmm. So like, I think it's taking the time to pause and then dig deeper. And, and we all, we're human. So we're going to look for things that match what we, what we want to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and sticking with this aspect of, of misinformation related to COVID, there was that viral video called Plandemic, right? That went around that basically, you know, chalked it all up to a kind of hoax. It's, it's intended to control us, you know, these sorts of things, which totally feeds into a lot of sort of suspicion of government and like a desperation for like absolute freedom and these sorts of things. But one of the reactions that was like really common, at least among my Facebook friends was this idea that, hey, Facebook took this video down or YouTube took this video down. Therefore, it's legitimate. It's It sort of like feeds into the conspiracy of it as opposed to just letting it linger. Maybe maybe it wouldn't have spread as much. I don't know if that's actually true, but there's this idea that like because Facebook and YouTube don't want this information out, it must be that they're part of a big cabal that is keeping, you know, important information from the people because they are trying to control us. Yeah, I think I think these companies like Facebook and YouTube and Google, I think something that sometimes we want to think is that they're neutral or that, you know, they would block some, you know, like it, it gets really complicated that way. And and I, I kind of feel like they're a company. They want to make money. And yet they do, they, they are under a lot of pressure to do more fact checking and pull things down that maybe aren't true. And it, I think that's part of what's created this sort of overall mistrust um, among all kinds of things, media, Facebook, whatever. And I just think it's so complicated. And, and I think that people, they want to believe what they want to believe. And so they are likely to, I mean, we're human, right? So Mm -hmm. we assume, we assume the story that we want to be true. And so if you feel like this must be true, then you're going to spin it in the way that comes out positive for what you want it to be, I think. Totally. Yeah. And and I think because we do want it to be true, we end up down a almost confirmation bias rabbit hole uh, where where the things keep compounding and and things add to one another uh, such that uh, we end up only seeing the things that feed into our confirmation bias. Uh, and I guess social media does that as well for us, because as you said earlier, uh, we end up being marketed too. And, and this is the complex space where section uh, 230 comes in. Are they a platform? Are they a service provider? Are they a news media outlet? And that, that's probably not something we necessarily want to delve into right now. Uh, but I'm interested in how you see confirmation bias working in this. Um, how do our cognitive uh, biases uh, play into to our constant consumption? I think I think it's totally a thing. There is a lot of research around the psychology of social media and online platforms. Of course, I'm not a psychologist, but I think it's true. I think we seek out things that confirm what we want them to confirm. And then when you layer that in with these algorithms that like, if you are always searching the same kinds of things, they're going to keep showing you those kinds of things. So they end up really dovetailing right into each other where we are shown information that we agree with. And so then we agree with it. So then we seek out what we agree with and then we see more of it. And then the algorithms show us more of it. And we can end up in Another term that often gets used is filter bubble, where like 
filtering out all the things. And so we're in a bubble of what we agree with. And I think, I think that's part of how misinformation spreads so quickly because it's just going to keep showing us the things that, you know, fit into the algorithm. And it's scary, actually. I think, I think as, as a person, but also as a person of faith, it's really scary to me how much we can be sort of targeted at or manipulated Mm -hmm. just by Mm -hmm. here's, here's you clicked on this article. So like, I personally like to joke that I like, will like seek out a different news source just to like mess up the algorithm. (laughs) Um, Cause I'm like, I'm going to click over here. Yeah. I think we're, I think confirmation is a huge piece of this and something we're not, people aren't paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Can, can we talk about confirmation bias now in terms of the political situation? When this podcast airs, it will be the day after the election. Um, who knows if things will be resolved anytime soon? We'll see. But of course, one of the things that we see a lot of is if you are on a particular side or if you like a particular candidate, then you will vilify the other side or the opposing candidate. And confirmation bias bleeds into that such that people are willing to believe some really outlandish and frankly implausible things. I know back in 2016, there was the whole kind of Pizzagate thing where Hillary Clinton had this like pizzeria with this underground sex trafficking rink and all this stuff. And just on its face, it's so preposterous and and frankly, cartoonishly silly, like uh, how she was a Satanist uh, from that same sort of report that she like would drink blood and these sorts of things. And you just think like, obviously what that does is it feeds into one's dislike of Hillary. If you already dislike her, you are willing to embrace something that just basically reinforces that. And we see that in less cartoonish ways all the time though. And how do we sort of disentangle, you know, sort of the reports that are legitimate from the ones that we just sort of want to be legitimate because it feeds into our political appetites? I think we have to, I mean, I, I just, I really think it goes back to pausing (laughs) and checking our emotions. I think I've seen that happen. I mean, I know I've seen that happen with people in my own life and I'm sure I've done it too. And I think that how, how we react, this is one way that I think Christians can really be different, right? It's like how we react to some of these things. And are we part of just like spewing these crazy stories? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think it, to me, it's such a shame because politically, I think we've lo- almost because of things like confirmation bias and social media and all these things, it's almost sometimes feels like we've lost the ability to have a conversation around issues because they all turn into this, you know, very polarizing personality. And we have this confirmation bias around like, well, I agree with X, Y, and Z issue. So obviously anyone who thinks those other things is wrong or they're terrible people or whatever you want to say about them. And I think that, you know, our political culture, I mean, there's like the, everything feels so politicized right now. And so it'll be with the election and, you know, how much we live in our little filter bubbles. I mean, I know so many people that, you know, after the last election in 2016, they were shocked by the outcome of the election because they didn't know anyone that maybe voted and how did we end up with the president we ended up with? Because they were living in a filter bubble, both 
in their real life, but also online. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that creates, you know, a really hard situation. And, and again, it goes to me, it goes back to this question of like, how are we going to respond as Christians and how are we going to engage in productive ways, um, and loving ways and teasing out the, the difference between like actual disinformation versus like, okay, I just don't agree with this Mm -hmm. takes a certain, a pretty high level of self-control mm-hmm. and self-reflection and self-awareness mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I think our online environment isn't great at facilitating. It, it, it loves the, the outrageous headline because people are going to click on it. And so it, it's like doing internal work, I think is actually part of what we need to do in order to engage mindfully. I mean, I'm interested in thinking a little bit more about how we engage mindfully. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about is confirmation bias and and how we read news media but uh, i mean a lot of the a lot of the engagement that we do as much as as I, we were talking about at the start we live in a broadcast society now where you can just send things out on the internet and uh, nevertheless i think there is still that impulse uh, for people um especially on facebook and twitter to interact with each other uh, you know, um i i feel like we've all got a certain number of people who we're friends with or who we grew up with on our feeds who are spouting misinformation or uh, have gone down the rabbit hole in a certain way how do you think we should be interacting with the with people without our friends who are who are like this is it pr- profitable to be constantly butting heads against them is it con- is it profitable to be not doing anything and, and then seemingly uh, complicit in by silence i i struggle with this to try and figure out how how to engage with the rabbit hole to me it, it feels a little bit like bringing people out of out of cult environments uh, but that's probably actually not not necessarily uh, overall a helpful way of doing things uh interesting your own reflections on that yeah it's something that i've with the class that i taught back in january and february i ended the class the six-week class with a, a conversation around loving our online neighbors and i plan to do the same thing again in a couple of weeks I think this is one area where we really need to be inviting the holy spirit <laughs> into our kind of everyday spaces. I think it depends. I have had multiple people in my life where I've had to really wrestle through what is it better to just be quiet and be like, you know, whatever. Or like you said, am I being complicit in something I really don't want to be complicit in because it's a really serious thing. I think one of the things that can get lost is asking ourselves. I I saw a quote recently, someone posted it and the prayer, like, make me an instrument of your peace, like praying that before we post. And mm. am I being an instrument of peace in what I post? Is this a, and then the other question is, is this just better to get coffee? Well, mm. I don't know if we can get coffee with people right now, but you know, is this better as an in-person conversation? What am I trying to accomplish? <laughs> yeah. What am I trying to accomplish by posting this? What, and then like, again, inviting the Holy Spirit into that. I think. I wrestle with it. I I can't I can't think of anyone I know who doesn't <laughs> who is actually trying to be thoughtful and mindful and caring. And I think again, being self-aware and and really inviting a bigger picture into all of this than just it's too easy for us to respond and how do we give ourselves tools to slow down, you know, reminders on our phone or whatever prayers that we need to say like how do we invite God into our online interactions? 
Well, I think that is a beautiful way for us to close out this conversation. I think that's a great reminder for all of us. And we appreciate all of the practical advice and and input that you've given us to think about this issue of misinformation from a faithful perspective and think about how we're not loving our neighbors well if we are sharing misinformation or mindlessly just spreading on things that confirms our biases, but yet we don't stop to think about what emotions are being stirred up within us, these sorts of things. So really appreciate having you on today, Rachel. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from The Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on The Two Cities Podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.